are in the book of Revelation. Last week we, we were in Revelation chapter 10, um, where we discussed the mighty angel that was to come. And I said that last week was probably the, the hardest message of the whole series to, to preach. And, and, and it, I, probably, I still maintain that. And that is because you've got to define, at that moment I have to define what I believe about the rapture, the, the harpazo, the raptoro of the church. And so as I showed last week, I believe that that is Jesus coming in the clouds in Hebrews chapter, in Revelation chapter 10, and that um, that is the, the culmination, the completion, the finishing of the work of the church, that it, which is the mystery. And um, so we talked about that last week with the mystery, and that um, the mystery throughout the word has been the coming of the church in the church age. And so today we move on into um, the seventh... 70th week of Daniel's vision proper. If you remember, um, as we've gone through this series in the book of Revelation, we looked at the things that were, that was chapter 1, the things that are, and that was chapter 2 and 3, and then before we got into the things that shall be, we did a, a, a brief look, though it may not seem brief, it really was brief, um, look at prophecy throughout the scriptures. And we looked, um, we took some time as we went through the book of Daniel, and we looked at that 70 weeks and we discussed those and we said that there was still the, the one week which was to come. That the 69 weeks, 483 years, were fulfilled between the decree of Artaxerxes and the, the cutting off of Messiah, of his, of his being crucified. But that we looked forward to still one week that was to come. This one period of seven years which was to come. And I've, I've made reference to it at different times as we've come now in through chapter 4 and beyond, talking about the, the, um, the, uh, the normal, the one everybody holds on to, traditional, traditional view of pre-tribulational rapture, um, in that it, it, it happened when John was called up in, in Revelation chapter 4, and I made comments about the fact that that doesn't make sense to me, because, um, the seven years doesn't begin until when? Do you have your, that little overview sheet that I gave you? When does the seven years actually begin in the book of Revelation? Anybody remember? Look at your little color photos there. Come on, Timmy. I saw you open it up. When does it say? According to Bob, when, when, when does it start? That's right there on the sheet. It's that big yellow thing. Yeah, the big yellow thing on the bottom. <laughs> Revelation chapter 11. Right here, right where we're at today, okay, really is the beginning of the seven years. Okay, we have three and a half years, which we're going to see today, that, is, that we're going to talk about today. The first three and a half years go by quickly, okay? And, um, and then we get into the final three and a half years. And so this, this message is, is really kind of an, an exciting message from the perspective of that we are getting into that final week of Daniel's vision. And we're going to talk about some things that, again, are semi-controversial. It seems like the whole book of Revelation is controversial, but you know why that is, don't you? Because it hasn't happened yet. And so since it hasn't happened yet, it's out there. Everybody can debate what's going to happen. And it's amazing to me how many people are, are so definitive that they know exactly all these things. And, and I hope that though I share with you what I believe, I, I'm, I haven't presented myself as so dogmatic that I, I've got the answers to this all. Because, again, I know that somewhere along in here I've, I've missed something. Probably just one little point, but it's, I, I know I've missed something on all this. So today, 
we want to look at Revelation 11 in the first 14 verses. And in that, we want to look at the temple briefly, but then also the witnesses. Okay, and so Steve has already read Revelation 11, but we're going to pick it up here at verse 1, where we see that John is told to, to have this read and to measure the temple. And so this is important. I want to read it again. It says, Then I was given a read like a measuring rod, and the angel stood. Who stood? What angel? What angel? Come on. Help me out. The big angel. The mighty angel. That's the one. Remember, this, there was no chapters when, Paul was, when John was writing. Okay, this is one, one big letter. So who was the, the angel? I mean, he would refer to specifically if it was a different angel, but it must be the, still the same angel that was talking to him. And so therefore we have the mighty angel that was coming down. Okay? So this is going to be important in just a few moments. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Now, the first thing we want to talk about here is the existence of the temple. This is a problem to many um, dispensationalists. Because the temple... Now, you say, what's a dispensationalist? We've talked about that in the past. But a dispensationalist want, is one who believes that God has worked um, specifically in different eras of history. And that in those eras, he has given men a test. Men have failed the test. And, men, and God has come by his grace and redeemed them anyway. Okay? And so, we are in the dispensation of grace right now. The dispensation of the church is what dispensationalists would refer to. And I am a dispensationalist. And so I believe that there are different workings of God throughout history. I guess I should do it this way for you all, right? And so that God worked differently in the garden than he's working right now. However, I believe that throughout all those dispensations, in a sense, salvation has been one and the same all the way through. And that is, you still had to be saved by faith. It's never been by law. Isn't that what Paul says in the book of Romans? It was always based upon faith. And it's always faith in God who established his plan. Okay? And so God has revealed his plan greater and greater throughout the dispensations. We give an account for great more, more knowledge than they did back in the Old Testament days. Does that make sense? Because God's plan is so wide open to us now. We understand the fullness of who Jesus Christ is. We understand that God came to the earth to die for us. Some of that was clouded. They were looking through the mirror dimly. Does that make sense? But they still had to have faith in God in his provision for salvation, even throughout all that. So this existence of the temple is hard for some of these people who are dispensationalists because they say that when Jesus Christ came, he was what? The ultimate the sacrifice. He was the end of sacrifices. And so where, therefore, why is there even a temple? Because if there is a temple, there is what? Temple sacrifices. Now the thing that you need to understand, first of all, is that though men struggle with this concept of a temple being here, very clearly God doesn't. Does that make sense? Okay? Because I believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible. I don't know about you. And so literally, I read Re Revelation chapter 11, and what do I literally understand? There's a temple going to be there. That's exactly right. Now, whether or not there is going to be animal sacrifices happening there, it doesn't say right now. It doesn't say here. Okay? However, I do understand that in order for them to build this temple, and looking at what is going on right now in Israel, that there probably will be 
animal sacrifices. They are looking for the red heifer right now. We've talked about that over the years. Okay? They have already made the temple utensils. Everything is set up. There is a group of men who have been set apart from their youth so that they were not tainted by the world, who can be the priests in that temple whenever it is established. What they need right now is a red heifer. A pure red heifer. They found one a few years ago, but they found one white hair on it, and so therefore it was disqualified. They need a pure red heifer to be born in the land. When that happens, they can sanctify, purify the, 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 the land and the utensils and everything else, the, the, the priests, for this corporate worship, this temple worship. Now, so the existence of the temple is not a, it's a moot point to me. The Bible says it's going to be there. Though I don't, may not fully understand how this, all this comes together, it doesn't really matter to God. Right? God says it's going to be so. Now, the other thing in this, just to have it in your mind, the Jews who do, do not worship Jesus Christ right now, who are the ones who really are planning the temple, okay, they're not, they're, they're not completed Jews that are looking at completing the temple, okay, they're, 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 they're Jews, they're, they're conservative Jews. What do you think they're planning on building the temple for? To worship Jesus Christ? To have sacrifices. They're, they want to reinstate Judaic worship, okay? So when the worshipers are there, so you need to understand all those concepts that are going on, okay? I mean, everything doesn't happen from an American Christian point of view. You know, sometimes we just kind of look through, eisegetically through our own eyes. But the second thing that, that, that is here that we're going to look at, and that is the measuring of the temple. Because in the measuring of the temple, we see something very clearly, very interesting, and that is that John is told to measure these things. There's, a, there's a, um, an illusion, if you would, to Ezekiel. Do you remember when Ezekiel was given the vision of the temple? He was told to do what, Devin? To measure it, right? He's going out with this measuring stick, and he's supposed to measure everything. And so John, in a sense, prophetically, is kind of fulfilling part of Ezekiel's vision from that perspective. Although Ezekiel's vision is more toward the millennial temple than it is toward this, this temple right here, which could be one and the same, okay? Um, but note, in the measuring of the temple... John is specifically told to leave out, to cast out. And the word is not just to leave out, but to actually, to, to cast it out, to, to have nothing to do with it, to put it aside. And what is that? The court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles. Now this is interesting, because where the arrow is pointing is the court of the Gentiles. So you note that this is the Temple Mount, okay, in, in the days of the, of the Second Temple, okay, or the reconstruction of the Third Temple. And you have on here, in this, this temple, you've got the temple proper, okay, you've got the Holy of Holies inside the temple, and then you've got the place where only male Jews that are clean can come into. And then you've got the Court of the Woman, okay, which is also where the treasury was, where Jesus did a lot of his teaching, was this area. But then you have this area out here, which is called the court of the Gentiles, where the Gentiles are allowed in. But there is a wall that is right here, and that's the wall of separation that was broken down, that Jesus Christ broke down. It's really kind of a cold thing. That, that wall, there's literally a wall right here that the Gentiles weren't allowed through. And so it has just, you know, little spaces for the women and the men to be able to, Jewish women and men to come through. And so 
that wall, what Paul is talking about, the wall that's right here is broken down. The middle wall partition is broken down. But John is told not to measure the court of the Gentiles. This really struck me this week as I was studying. Okay? Um, why? Why the court of the Gentiles? And I, and I, and I looked at this picture and, and, I, and, and, I, and I was trying to analyze it. And this is not facetious. This is not, I'm not going to bring up Superman's shield here. Um, but really perplexed me, really kind of got me wondering, because I've made a statement over the years that I believe that there will be a deal that goes on somewhere along this. I'm not a prophet or son of a prophet, okay? And clearly, some of my thoughts are changing as we go through the book of Revelation, so I'm proving that I'm not a prophet. So, and that I think that there would be a deal for the Golan Heights, that Israel would give the Golan Heights for the Temple Mount, okay? Well, I'm starting to reconsider that. I still think that's a good theory, um, but, I, but I'm, I'm reconsidering a little bit because of this one statement. Because it leads us to the location of the temple. Now, I want you to look at the picture, okay? It's very important to do this little New Age thing here. No, anyways. But look, look at the picture and just kind of memorize this portion of it, okay? you got the temple mount and you got the temple there. Do you see it? Okay. Do you see it? Let's go back. See it? Okay. Almost identical uh, angle there. Okay. There's a problem. What's the problem? There's something in the place of it. Do you know what? It's the dome with a rock. This is, to the Muslims, I believe it's the third, third most holy shrine. Third most holy shrine to, to the Muslims. Okay. And, um, they don't want to give that up. And so, in my, my way of thinking in the, in the past, oops, that's not where I want to go. In my way of thinking in the past, is that if um, the temple was to be placed back where it was, then the Dome of the Rock has to what? It has to be removed. It has to go away. Um, and I've often said that how long do you think it would take for them to get rid of it cleanse the, the land, and rebuild the temple. And I said, probably three and a half years, just in time for Antichrist to come in and, and put the abomination of desolation. There's a problem with what I've shared that I, I just, it, thing, it just never, never sunk in until this week. And I said, you dummy. And that is what? No, the temple's already there at the beginning of the seven years. Revelation 11, it's the beginning of the seven years. The temple is already there. So it can't be that part of the seven-year covenant is this tra the transition of the land. I was wrong. I didn't bring all my thought process together. Now I have it on tape. I was wrong. Anyways, so, well, it's not really tape. It's digital. So I can go home and I can delete that part, right? I get rid of the part where I say I was wrong. Anyways, um, no, I'll leave it there. Anyways, and so it, it can't be. If the seven years actually begins right here in Revelation 11, which it appears to by, 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 the, by the text, then the temple is already there. Now, we're not told when it's built. Okay? Throughout all those seal judgments and the trumpet judgments, we're never told of a deal. We're never told of, of the temple being able to be built. So here's the temple. Okay? So for some of you that uh, are into this kind of stuff, this may be perplexing. But anyways, the temple is there. Now, which means, as I look at the current view of the Temple Mount, something has to what? Something has to give. Now, there are multiple opinions, though, 
over where the original temple was located. There is, in some of the Jewish writings, some details of where the temple proper actually sat on the Temple Mount. Because remember, let me go back here again, there's a lot of empty space on the Temple Mount. And so the assumption would be that symmetrically the temple would be sitting in the middle like that. But there is some evidence potentially to indicate that maybe it's not. And so the first thing is, first um, proposal is that it's the central location and that it's, it was actually sitting there. And so the problem with that would be um, that the temple would be placed on top of the Dome of a Rock. If that's the case, okay, then one of the things that we can look forward to in the future assuming that we'll be here until just before that, is that at some point, there is going to be some kind of a deal that happens where the Muslims are willing to give up the Dome of the Rock. Or that there is a massive Israeli, Israeli incursion onto the Temple Mount. Okay? I think, looking at the way Israel does business right now, that it will be a deal. That there will be some... If this is the case, if it's a central location, okay, then there will be some... some deal that goes on to be able to get that. I don't know. But there is a second op option, and that is what is now understood as a southern location of it, based upon some of the Jewish writings that indicate that the temple proper probably sat closer to the southern wall than it did to the northern wall, and closer to the um, eastern wall, which is this wall, so closer to the southern wall than it was to the northern wall, closer to the eastern wall than it was to the western wall. Okay? And that's basically how it's stated. Now, that's pretty cryptic. Okay? But it lets you know that it probably wasn't what? Symmetrical. That it was probably off-centered in some manner. Okay? And so there is a theory out there now, based upon aqueducts, the water coming in. There's a lot of archaeological stuff going on here. I mean, you can see all this down here. This is Solomon's porch. Um, there is Robinson's arch that's over here. Marsh and I have been there. There's just so much arch archaeological finds that are going on around and they're finding more and more things and they're putting together all these theories and so some of the theories have to do with water coming in because there would be the need for lots of water on the temple mount when they do all these sacrifices and so therefore the water couldn't go that far because of the, the height of the mountain okay and so there is another theory out there about a northern position but it's been ruled out a lot based upon water based upon the aqueducts that it couldn't get there because the elevation level would be too high and so they've now started to look at a southern location for it, based upon some of those Jewish writings and based upon the aqueduct system. And if that was the case, lo and behold, the, one of the propositions is that the temple would fit directly between the Dome of the Rock and the El Aqsa Mosque. Did I say that right, Lawrence? El Aqsa. El Aqsa Mosque. Okay, which is an important um, item for the, the the Muslims as well. And so. If it's the case, then there is the potential that, and I've for years as well said, no, this can't be, that the Dome of the Rock could actually sit on the Temple Mount at the same time as the Temple proper. If that's the case, it would make sense then, that would be why the court of the Gentiles was not to be measured. Because, as it was said, it was going to be what? It was belonged to the, to the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles was fulfilled. And it's, and it's, and it's going to be trampled upon by the, the Gentiles. So I'm not saying either one of these are right. I'm presenting you information. Okay? And so 
it was eye-opening to me as I went through it, and I started to study it and, um, and looking at positions of the temple. And so, again, if the harpazo, the rapture of the church, doesn't occur to Revelation chapter 10, we're going to be going through a whole lot of stuff. And we're going to be seeing a lot of stuff that we wouldn't have thought we would have seen. Now, if it's in Revelation 4, praise God, we don't go through all that stuff, and we just get a box seat and we look at it from the heavens. Okay? That's not how I understand the book of Revelation. I do believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. We're not going to be there. This is for Israel. But, potentially, we will be able to see some of these things occur. And as we see some of these things occur, we are going to be responsible to be what upon the earth? Witnesses. Witnesses. Okay? And so, and that's the area that we're going to get into right now, is talking about the two witnesses that God is going to place upon the earth. Because once the harpazo happens, and I think this is, this is interesting to me, that if, if, if the rapture, the harpazo of the church happened in Revelation chapter 4, okay, you follow, tracking with me here? And the two witnesses don't occur until Revelation chapter 11. What witness was there between Revelation 4 and Revelation 11? There wasn't any. The 144,000 that were sealed were not necessarily believers at the time. They were to be witnesses during the what? The seven years. And so, just another one of those thought processes that are out there. So, we are to be, as we go through these two witnesses, and as we look at their introduction, and we, and we consider who they are and, and their ministry, one of the things I want you to think about applicationally, that I am not one of those two witnesses. I understand that, okay? However, today, in this day today, and until that time that I am caught up to be it, well, I am. Does that make sense? Okay? And so, and so when we look at these two guys, or entities, or whatever they are, we'll talk about that in a moment, um, I need to understand that applicationally, a lot of this applies to me. Now, the introduction of the two witnesses, as we look at it. First of all, what is very interesting here is their number. There are two. This is very important. Does anybody understand why there are two? That's exactly right. I've got the scriptures there that you can look at later. But in Deuteronomy 17, 6 and 19, verse 5, again, Jesus refers to it in Matthew 18, verse 16, and then Paul refers to it in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 1, that it has to be in the mouth of two or three witnesses that something would be established. And so if there was one by himself there, regardless of who it is, Elijah, Moses, whoever, he could claim himself to be, the witness would be moot. But because there are two, the witness is then established as being true according to Judaic law. And again, remember, where are these witnesses coming? They're coming to Jerusalem. They're coming to the temple. Their primary focus of ministry is to who? To the Jew. The church has been taken away. The mystery has been completed. The 70th week of Daniel is, about, is, is beginning right now. And that 70th week of Daniel is for who? Your holy people, your holy city, your holy hill. It's for the Jews. It's for Israel. And so this whole seven years is going to come up. The, the world gets a little byproduct of it, but God is going to be once again dealing with his chosen people. He's going to be dealing with his, his people and calling them to repentance. Okay? And so in the mouth of two witnesses. So we have the, two, the number. We have their season. We're told that they are going to be ministering for 1,260 days. Now what's interesting is that I didn't share... Um, when we went through the, the court of the Gentiles, is that the court of the Gentiles was going to be treaded on for 42 months. Did you read that? 
Okay? Now, say again. Yep. Okay. 1260 days equals 42 prophetic months. Because when we, when we went through Daniel, we talked about that a prophetic month was 30 days. So if you take the 1260 days divided by 30, you get 42 prophetic months. That equals three and a half years. So, these witnesses will be witnessing, will be serving, will be um, serving God for three and a half years. Now, their attire, they wore sackcloth. Now, you can go through the, the, the scripture, and I didn't put all the references here, um, because there's too many. There's 50-something references, 56, I think, references of sackcloth. Sackcloth is worn, interestingly enough, as a picture of sorrow. Twofold, two, two coming out of Either sorrow, um, as far as mourning, someone has died, and so therefore you're putting on sackcloth in your sorrow, or sorrow over your sin, as a, a humbling kind of concept. And so, um, if you were the king of one land, and you were destroying me, and I was coming to you for um, mercy, I would put on sackcloth as well. Um, showing my, um, the, my desire to, to humble myself below you. In a sense, that's a sinful kind of concept too, between two, two human beings. And so, um, the people of Nineveh, when Jonah preached to their, for their destruction, put on sackcloth. And when the, the message reached the king of Nineveh, he did what? He put on sackcloth. So, i got to ask myself, why are these two guys wearing sackcloth? I mean, clearly they're not in repentance. Are they mourning? And the question, the, my response is, as I, as I meditate on this, is yes, there's great sorrow for them right now. What are they sorrowing for? Israel. That's exactly right. They're sorrowing for the land of Israel. They are prophets of the Most High God, potentially. Okay, we'll talk about that. Coming, and they have great sorrow for their land. They are putting on the sackcloth, just as Daniel said when he was declaring before God and, and declaring the sins of his people. He declared not only the sins of his people, but he declared his own sins. And he placed himself one and the same with the people. We have done these things. And so Daniel didn't just say, oh, these, my fathers did this and, and, the, and the people are doing this. But Daniel said, we are doing this. And so these, these individuals, these witnesses, are taking the sackcloth on and, and demonstrating to the, to the Jews what their position before the Lord ought to be like. And they're looking for not only sorrow for their people and their sin, but also looking for them to do what? Repent. To change the way they think. To turn in their direction back to God. And so finally we want to look at, not finally, finally, but finally in, under the introduction, we want to look at their identity. And this is probably as we go into this, this message, this is probably the, 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 the thing that most people are, are sitting there thinking, okay, this is the part. Who does Bob think they are? Well, there are, um, prophetically, they are called to be the olive trees and the two lampstands. Now, in the book of Zechariah, chapter 4, we're told in verse 1 to 3, and then down to verse 11, 14, Now the angel who talked with me, that is to Zechariah, came back and wakened me as a man who was wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I'm looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. 
two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at the left. Then, then in verse 11, up earlier he asks, what, what are these, these olive trees? And the angel just kind of bypasses the question and goes on with some other things. And so finally in verse 11, we read again that he come, Zechariah asks one more time, then I answered and said to him, but what are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and that's left? And I further answered and said to him, what are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of two gold pipes from which the gold oil drinks? So he's, he's interested too. What are these two olive trees, right? Here's what the angel says. Then he answered me and said, do you not know? Don't you know? And I said, no. No, my Lord. So he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. Now, did that give you a whole lot of information? No, in fact, the word anointed ones really are sons of oil. Sons of oil is really what the anointed one means. And so, being that they are sons of oil, I take that to understand to mean probably that they are sons of prophets. Okay? We'll, we'll look at that in a moment. Okay? But we're not really, we're not really told what the sons of oil are. But um, kings, prophets were anointed with oil. Okay? That's how they, they were done that. Okay? Now, in the identity, practically speaking then, there are lots of theories. We're going to talk about four of them very briefly here. Okay? First one is that these two witnesses are symbolic. They stand for the house of Judah and the house of, of Ephraim. Okay? Or the house of Israel. Um, you can look on, on your uh, sermon note sheet. You can see Jeremiah... Uh, chapter 11, verse 16, talks about Israel being, um, Judah being um, an olive tree to God. And the Messianics, um, Jews, Messianic Jews, um, those who um, put a high priority on Israel and the law and try to um, get rid of the church, get rid of Gentiles, it's a really amazing thing. I, I've talked to some who are very zealous. And they had one guy who was just, he, it just came out. I mean, it just, his utter hatred for Paul in, in Pauline writings was incredible. Now, understand, I have a lot of love for the Old Covenant and for the law and for the... As been under my, you understand that? I, I, I don't think we understand the New Covenant as well as we should because we don't understand the Old Covenant. And there's a great love for me for, for the things that are Israel. Um, they, it is the foundation of our faith. However, we are in a the mystery period. We are in the time of the church. And we are not um, Jews. And so they seek to make this into the house of Judah and the house of Ephraim to say that you know it had no, really nothing to do with um, anything else and that God is calling them back through these two things. There's a lot of problems with this position. Um, a lot of um, biblical gymnastics that are going on with verses. And so I don't really consider it a, a valid one. I just want you to know what's out there so that if you ever hear it, okay, um, there's a, the two-house theory is a, is a big theory that's out there right now among Messianics. Okay? And since I've gone to some Messianic services and stuff like that, I've been exposed to that. I've done a little research on it. Um, and it, you just need to know it's there. And, but there's a lot of gymnastics that go on. Secondly, there's a position that it's Enoch and Elijah. Now, why would people believe? I mean, this is a possibility. Why do people believe that it's Enoch and Elijah? They're the only two that never died. Yeah. So you have the book of Genesis where it says that Enoch walked with God and he was no more. He didn't die. He was just gone. Now, we don't know by that that he was, didn't die. We just assume by that he didn't die. But he walked with God and he was no more because God loved him and took him. 
Um, Elijah went up into the, uh, the whirlwind on the, the chariot of fire. And so these two individuals never died. In Hebrews chapter 9, it says it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. So therefore, if it's appointed unto all men to die once, then, um, then these two guys should be good qualifications for it. Now, another one says it's Moses, which we're going to look at in a moment. And so the people who hold to this one say that it can't be Moses because Moses what? He already died. Now, the problem with that, that understanding is the fact that Lazarus already died too. In fact, he died twice. And Dorcas, she died twice too. And um, oh, there's numerous others as well. Um, who else do I have down here? Um, oh, Jairus' daughter. You know, Jairus was the, the ruler of the synagogue who came to Jesus, you know, and... and it says, Talitha Kuma, arise, you know, and she, she comes back to life, but she still doesn't live today, does she? I mean, you don't know anybody who's a couple thousand years old. No. So that means they died again. They died twice. So, so to say that it can't be Moses, because Moses then couldn't die twice, really doesn't hold true, because, okay? Also in that, and not to debate the scriptures here, because the scripture says that God buried him, okay? But, who saw Moses died. Nobody did. So we're not quite sure how he died. And what's in the, what's in the tomb. So anyways, we'll leave it there. So anyways, so an option is Enoch and Elijah, it can be. Now the, the, the neat thing about this one would be, if it's true, is that Enoch is pre-law. And so, um, so his teaching would go before the teachings of Moses... The, the Jews venerate um, Enoch as well, as, as a godly man. And so, as Paul, writing in the book of Romans, tries to show that faith was even before the, the writings of Moses, Enoch would be then a likely candidate to be a witness of that. Does that make sense? Okay. So, the next one is that it's Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah. Now, what's the support, supporting evidence for Moses and Elijah? Well... Supporting evidence for Moses and Elijah very clearly is found in the scope of their testimony, and it's to Jerusalem, that they're coming to Jews. Enoch not necessarily was a Jew. Moses was. Moses was the, was the beginning of it. Um, to the Jews, they venerate Moses and they venerate Elijah. They understood that a prophet was going to come, who was going to come in place of Moses, and he was going to come in the spirit of Elijah. Okay? And so that all makes sense. And so... So being that their scope is to the Jews and to Jerusalem, it makes sense. And specifically, when Jesus went on to the Mount of Transfiguration, who was it that appeared to him? Moses and Elijah. So Moses and Elijah were treated with the same, if you would, the, the same um, way on the Mount of Transfiguration. They, they were equally the same. Regardless of whether one was raptured, if you would, Elijah, or one was through death. Think about it. One day the Harpazo is going to come, we, I believe, potentially in Revelation chapter 10, right? What we read in 1 Thessalonians, though, when Paul was talking about the rapture of the church, the Harpazo of the church, right? The, the gathering up of the, of the saints. What does he say is going to happen? Does he say that the dead in Christ are going to be raised, and then somebody's going to come with a sword and kill all those who are believers so that we, that we pass through the portal of death? No, not at all. So... But will we still be in heaven? Will we still be considered dead? Yes. Do, do you understand? You're still going to, in some manner, you're still going to go through, whether it's in, just like this, you're still going to pass through 
the process of, your, of this mortal body being put on what? Immortality. And this corruptible putting on incorruption. If it wasn't the case, then we're going to be going into heaven as what? As sinful people. So you still have to, even in the moment of that rapture, even in the moment of that catching up, somehow we're going to go through what? A concept of death. A transition. Okay? Because if you understand that even if I had a heart attack right now, laid out flat, I wouldn't be laid out flat. I'd be gone. You get it? You can't kill me. I won't die. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you will never die. Do you believe this? Isn't that what he asked Martha? And so this fact that Elijah and Enoch didn't die doesn't necessarily hold true. Because if they were caught up and they're in heaven, they must have what? Died. Get it? In some manner, what we would consider death. It's not like they're going to be resurrected and brought back. They're there. So, so that, the thing about Moses doesn't necessarily hold true. But their scope, it is good supporting evidence. And secondly, the scope of their authority. Note what we're told about what they can do. Okay? We're told, verse 3 says, I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth, Verse 5, and if anyone who wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power or authority to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power to, over waters to turn into blood and to strike the earth with all the plagues as so often as they desire. Now, I've got the references there and I don't want to necessarily go back to them. But clearly, back in the book of Exodus, chapter 7, verses 14 to 21, we read about Moses doing what? Turning water into blood. Okay? In First um, Kings 17, uh, chapter 1, and chapter 18, verse 1, we read about Elijah stopping the water for potentially three and a half years. Some have conjectured in that the way it's written that it was literally three and a half years that the water stopped in Israel. Wouldn't that be kind of interesting? Hmm? Um, and then in Second Kings chapter 1, verse 10, we read about Elijah when he was going to be arrested, um, doing what? Calling down fire upon those who were going to take him. So he destroys them by fire. So an interesting thing. So again, then their authority also bears witness that it's potentially Moses and Elijah. If I was nailed to a corner and I was told that I had to, I had to pick one of these things or I was going to die, I wasn't necessarily going to die for which one I picked, but I had to pick one or I'd die, this is the one I would pick. Okay? Not that it matters much, but that's, that's who it would be. The final one is that it's two unknown witnesses. I like this. If I have to go to a, if I said, okay, we don't, you're not allowed to pick door C, you have to pick another door, I'd say, okay, I pick door D. And that is two unknown witnesses. Why two unknown witnesses? Well, honestly, <clears throat> is God limited to doing miracles through only certain people? No, and because he did them through one person, does it mean that he can't do them through somebody else? No. And does not God, many times throughout these things, give names if the names were important? Would he not say, and this is what the proponents of this theory say, if it was Moses and Elijah, why wouldn't he say? And Moses and Elijah will appear in the temple. Now that would give great testimony to who they are when, when they appeared, wouldn't it? That God already declared it was Moses and Elijah, or Enoch and Elijah. And so he chose not to say. So therefore, maybe they're just two men who will be living 
during that day that God will raise up and empower like Moses and Elijah, like Enoch and Elijah, like all the other prophets of the day, Isaiah, whoever, and they will raise up with this power. Because did not um, uh, Peter even say on that the, the sermon that he did on, on Pentecost and quoting, um, I think it's from the book of Joel, that in the, in the end days that men will be able to do great mighty wonders? And so it is possible, very possible, that, you know, we're looking back thinking there's got to be these Old Testament saints coming back, but it could very well be men that God has raised up right now to be the witness. So, again now, as we go through this, what was my original point in all this, applicationally? What about us? So many times, we like to look at somebody else, the professional, being the witness, don't we? We want to look at the Enoch's and Elijah's, the Moses's and Elijah's. Because those are the guys who are what? Who are really empowered. We don't want to think about the fact that it may be what? Just two unknown guys who God has raised up for the moment. How do you know, oh man, oh woman, that God hasn't raised you up as the witness in your own little temple area? Whether it's a concrete factory, whether it's a school building, whether it's a, a, somebody's house where we're doing painting, whether, I'm looking at you Steve, whether it's on all these different places, you get to travel all over being an evangelist, man, you know, in, in all these different places where people are coming to see you, whether it's in the, 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 the YDCs, wherever you're at, God has placed you as his witness. Do you get it? And we have got to be faithful to the task that he's given to us. And so, we have then the confirmation of the witnesses, not just the identity of them, their introduction to them, but the confirmation of What does God do for their confirmation? Well, he gives them protection and authorization. We've talked about that. For their protection, he gives them the ability to be able to spit fire out of their mouth. It's amazing to, to read some of the, the, the um, commentaries on this. Uh, people who spiritualize this stuff, and they say, well, if this was really literal, then these guys literally would have to shoot fire out of their mouths. Oh, come on, that's absurd. Well, right now, what? It may seem absurd. But you know what? If you were there that day and fire came out of the guy's mouth and it consumed somebody who was coming against him, guess what? You, all of a sudden you'd say what? Wow, these guys can spit fire out of their mouth. So, anyways, I, you know, throughout the scriptures, it's been amazing. I mean, how many, how many of you would have believed before Elijah that somebody could command for there to be no rain? I mean, before Elijah, how many would you say that you could say that it's going to rain right now? And you better get back down because there's going to be a storm coming where it's going to prevent you from getting back down. How many before Elijah would have said that you could, you could put up a, make a, an offering and call down fire from the heavens to consume it all? Do you get it? Jesus said if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be moved and cast into the sea and it would be done for you. And so if God wants to protect these people, these guys, by casting out fire out of their mouth, what could he do? He can give them the ability to cast out fire out of their mouth. Now there is, under the previous section where we talked about this, in identity, a passage from Jeremiah where it talks that God talks to Jeremiah about breathing the word of God like fire and consuming the, the, the stubble that's out there. So there are some people who believe that maybe this fire that they're casting out is the word of God. I don't see it as that. I see it literally as this protection, that, there are, that they're going to be, want to be squashed, that the beast is going to want to squash them, they're going to come, 
and that these guys have the ability to protect themselves. And it's going to be done in a way that everybody's going to say, whoa, there's something different about these guys. I mean, if they pulled out an Uzi and they shot them, what makes them any different than a terrorist? Nothing. But if these guys open up mouth, their mouth and it's like a flamethrower coming out, I think it would get my attention. So, anyways. So, I'm okay with it. I'm okay with God being able to give guys the ability to do this. Their authorization, we've already talked about it. They're going to be able to call drops down whenever they want to. They're going to be called plagues down whenever they want to. They're going to be able to turn water into blood. And I believe they'll do it as a testimony to who they are. To give substantial evidence that they are, potentially, for me, Elijah and Moses. So that Israel will listen to their witness, to their testimony. Now, the destruction of the witnesses. First of all, the timing of the destruction. When will they, the timing of their death, when will it occur? Well, we're told it'll be after the three and a half years, the completion of their witness, completion of their testimony. I find this very exhilarating. These guys were untouchable until their ministry for God was what? Finished. And when their ministry was done, the days of the book were completed. Right? And they were taken, taken they, were, they were allowed to be killed. I don't want to take this too, too extreme here, okay? But I believe God's got a ministry for you. If you're walking in that ministry, that you're doing what God desires for you to do, and you're in the center of his will, I believe you're untouchable. Satan can't touch you when you're doing what God desires for you to do. Now, can, if God allows him to mess with you a little bit, can he mess with you? Yes, he can. But understand that though there were people who came who tried to stop their ministry, God gave them the ability to defend themselves and prevent the, the, from happening. I don't believe that Satan's attacks are stronger than God's defenses. Does that make sense? And if you are serving the Lord God and you are witnessing for Him and you are doing what God calls you to do, when the day comes that your ministry is completed, you're done. Go ahead, Phyllis. That's exactly right. So, and that has happened so many times over the over history is that the witness for Christ, their testimony was greater after their physical death than even before. Amen. That's exactly right. They're not just I mean, first of all, at the funeral. I mean for me, I want when I die, I would love for for my funeral to be a, a, a seed sowing moment. You know? Walter read his own song. No, he wrote it. Wrote it, yeah. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm prideful now. I've got to struggle with this prideful. I, I want to videotape myself, and I want to preach it myself. Anyways. <laughs> I, I, I want to put up a, have somebody put up a TV and have Bob preaching from the pulpit, you know? And they can have my, my body laid out below it, you know, and have my head. Anyways, but whatever. <laughs> but I, I do. Listen, you know, you live your life to serve the Lord. What a great opportunity. I mean, this is it. This is my, my final hurrah, you know. Give God the glory and, 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 and understand that His grace that was in my life. Don. I wonder if they knew when your time was up. So you might want to go ahead and get that sermon ready. Amen. I don't know it yet. See, he hasn't shown me. So, yeah. Um, 
But yeah, did they know? That's a good point. Did they know when their time was up? I think they did because I think they understood prophetically. But I don't know. We'll see. Um, Jesus knew when his was. I mean, he was told. So, um, but that's a good point. I'm ready to get it ready um, and just continue update it. I got to update my wills too. Anyways, one day I'll do that. Um, I'm figuring if I don't update my wills, God will take me. <laughs> uh, don't don't ex- use extortion with God. Anyways, but so anyways, the timing of the death. After three and a half years, it was the completion of the testimony. This is really cool stuff. Okay, and then the details of the death. Now, this isn't cool stuff, okay? Um, But it is encouraging if you understand it right. At the end of the three and a half years, God allowed the beast to make war with them, to overcome them, and to kill them. I am sure that it probably wasn't a pretty sight. Or, I say was, like it happened in the past. It already has. You understand, in the Hebrew mind, there is such a thing as a, a, a future completed action. This is future completed actions with God. It's already done, done deal. And so, but anyways, it won't be a pretty sight when it happens. And you know what? There are many believers around the world right now who are dying for their faith. And it's not a pretty sight. God doesn't promise us that we will die quickly or peaceably. Rather, he tells us in the book of Hebrews, in the, in the hall of faith, about prophets who were sawn in half. That was Isaiah. Could you imagine serving God? And Isaiah, he's the one who falls down in his face before God, and God says, who will go for us? And he says, here I am, Lord, send me. And God says, okay, fine, you're going to go, and I'm going to give you a message, but the people aren't going to listen to you. Oh, gee, thanks, God. Aren't you excited about that ministry? Well, that's what these two witnesses are doing. Same thing. They know what they're coming for. And they know how, they're gonna, how it's going to end. But think about Jesus. Isn't he the ultimate witness for us? That God loved us so much that he came. And what did he go through? The spitting, the mocking, the scourging, the bludgeoning, the whipping. And he knew it. The worst case is, he knew it. All his life he knew it. It wasn't like he found out at the very moment it was going to happen and then he just had a... Uh, you know, go through the trauma of the moment. But Jesus in the garden, weeping as it were, drops of blood, he knew what he was about to go through for you and me, and yet he chose to walk the path. If you knew the path that God would have for you, if you would live the life for him, the question is, would you live it? I think of Jim Elliot. In uh, Roger... Um, my mind's blanking on the other guys. But with the Aka Indians. And how they went back. They went to minister to the Akans. Knowing that their life was in danger. And Elizabeth Elliot. Who went back to the same people. Who killed her husband. So she could tell them of the love of Christ. And be a witness of it. Am I willing? Am I willing to be drugged through the streets for Jesus Christ. They killed him. And they didn't just kill him, but then they did what with him? They laid him out in the street to rot for three and a half days. Left him out to rot. Now, understand, this is all on the internet. It doesn't talk about the internet here, does it? But we understand that there are webcams everywhere now. There are webcams on the Mount of Olives. 
just in case Jesus comes back so we can have everybody see it, right? There are webcams at, in Jerusalem. There are webcams every place. There is no doubt in my mind that these guys are going to have toe-to-toe coverage, right? And when they die, and when they're thrown in the streets, and it says the whole world rejoices, and they're giving gifts to everybody, it's going to be like Christmas. The whole world is going to be rejoicing that the witness of God has been destroyed. Isn't that like today, a little bit today? I mean, honestly, how many people like to hear you walk up and start telling them about Jesus? Rather, they're very relieved when those Bible thumpers are what? Are gone. When we can do our own thing. There are many times when we're not invited places because our very presence is a condemnation to a standard, to a biblical standard. That people want to do what they want to do and they don't want to feel what? Condemned by it. Whether someone says anything, they don't have to say anything, they just know. They know. And so, what am I willing to do? The bodies will be laid out in Jerusalem for three days. And finally we have the resurrection. Now, what's really neat about this is, again, that there is then the resurrection. That God doesn't leave their bodies there. That God does raise them up. He doesn't have to do that, but he does as the final testimony. And again, I think that that's going to be, when, when the church is resurrected, it will be the final great testimony before the world, before those seven years begins. And God's going to do it again. And we're told that here, every eye, every person sees it. Everybody notices it. Because at the very same moment that they are raised up, what happens? There's an earthquake. There's an earthquake. And a tenth of Jerusalem is destroyed, and we're told that 7,000 people are killed. Again, those who look at this as being symbolic, those who look at this as being symbolic say, oh, come on. If that's literal, that means that 7,000 people literally have to what? They have to die. Now, is that any problem? That God can declare that there will be 7,000 people, literally, who die? No. I just think, a lot of times when I think of these people saying, though, this can't be because of this, they really are making more comment about who? Well, not just themselves, but God. That God can't, God, God couldn't predict these things. You know, that God, God, there's no way that God can, can know this ahead of time. they got a very small God. But my God is the author of all things, even the future. And so, these two guys, whether it's Enoch and Elijah, whether it's Moses and Elijah, whether it's two witnesses that we don't know about yet, will have the ultimate victory. <laughs> you know, I read one commentator says that at every good party there's always, a, there's always a spoiler. And God acts as a spoiler at this party. You know? Everybody's giving gifts and having a blast, you know, kind of rejoicing over the, these dead rotting bodies in the street. And God comes in and puts the breath of life back into them, they stand up, and then they're whoosh, taken up. And everybody does what? They're scared. And what else does Revelation 11 tell us that they, what happens? This is awesome. They give glory to God. Now the sad thing is that many of these people giving glory to God still don't what? Repent. Isn't it phenomenal? That how many times God will work in your life? People understand God's working in your life. They praise God and they do what? They turn around and walk away. 
the same thing that happens. So, in conclusion, we are called to be witnesses. Just as these guys were witnesses, we are called to be witnesses. To give testimony to what Christ has done for us. We're called to be ambassadors of reconciliation. Seeking to reconcile sinners with God who died for them. Are you faithfully serving the Lord? Are you being the witness for Jesus Christ where God has planted you? The reaction of the people today to the testimony of God is rapidly looking like Revelation 11. How are you standing against the response? Are you standing in the authority and power of Jesus Christ? It's exciting for me when I read the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, where I'm told, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of Christ, love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're more than conquerors. It doesn't matter what the world may do. But if you are living in that will of God, if you are seeking to serve Him, nothing can touch you that God hasn't allowed. The question is, for me, am I serving God faithfully? Am I seeking to do His will? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your love. I thank You for Your grace and Your mercy. I thank you for your faithfulness to us. That you gave us the witness. And you said how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be those who have beautiful feet. Lord, help us to be those who, who go forth in your power and in your authority. Lord, not that we can turn water into blood. Not that we throw mountains into the sea. God, that in our very lives, your word does turn water into blood. That your very word does cast the mountains of my sin into the sea. Lord, that there is a, a light, there is a testimony, there is a witness. That is evidence in my life and through my lips. Lord, help us to be faithful. Lord, as we look forward to these days that come upon us, whether it is before the throne room vision, whether it is when he who is called the mighty angel comes to the earth, whether it is even afterwards that we even understand, Lord, I pray that you would cause us to be faithful to that moment, to the moment of our, our death here on the earth and to our moment of being caught up to be with you that we will hear the well done, my good and faithful servant, for your glory in Jesus' name.